Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now, here he is, the Peabody award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Welcome to the Great America show, and thanks for being with us. As you know, this podcast is dedicated to keeping strong our great constitutional republic and committed to the pursuit of truth and justice and preservation of the American way. Historically, the deadly China virus pandemic that has racked our nation and our citizens for the past two years has been among the greatest threats America's ever faced. And we face that threat to this very day. Despite the unprecedented speed with which biotech and pharmaceutical companies develop vaccines to fight the coronavirus, COVID-19, and introduce social distancing and masks, and then introduce mandates and testing, and then quarantines and isolation. Well, all of that somehow did not stop the pandemic. The shutdowns of businesses, large and small, and schools, even churches, the virus that raged through our country killed more than 800,000 Americans. The federal public health agencies, the FDA, the NIH, the CDC responded, and in some cases responded well, but in others, not so well. And now there's great uncertainty about the efficacy of those vaccines, concerns that early estimates of their effectiveness were overstated. And there is rising concern that risks were greater than originally understood by the public and that government mandates were motivated by ideological and partisan values rather than medical and scientific evidence and purpose. What were then those motives? We still don't know. Why did the government of a free people insist they follow mandates, follow orders, while government insisted their mandates and orders were based on science. And questioning those public health orders and mandates, insisting that the medical and scientific communities, government and big pharma, actually follow science and debate evidence, yes, sometimes in public, rather than choke off debate and challenge healthy skepticism and questioning of authorities, whether government or the medical and pharmaceutical industries themselves. 30,000 people braved the freezing cold weather in Washington, D.C. this past weekend to demonstrate against mandates. Healthcare workers and many of the doctors have risked their lives and careers and reputations to get answers to the very public questions attended that rally. Among the leaders of that rally, Dr. Peter McCullough. He was among those who testified before Senator Ron Johnson's panel on the global response to the Wuhan virus and what we've learned over the past two years of this worldwide epidemic. With us now is Dr. Peter McCullough, who along with Dr. Robert Malone has been valiant in his pursuit of reason and evidence and truth 
about these public health issues, these governmental responses to the pandemic. Dr. McCullough, thanks so much for being with us. And you are indeed one of the heroes of this piece. And we, uh, we appreciate your taking time to be with us. Dr. McCullough, I want to start first of all, if I may, after two years of this pandemic, uh, this, the rally that was held Sunday was unprecedented, uh, an extraordinary uh, moment at the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, you among the leaders there talking about the, the pandemic, uh, the government's response to it, and of course, defeat the mandate the purpose of the entire gathering. Your reaction to both the turnout and the success of the moment. You know, the turnout and the energy there was extraordinary. A, a large mass of very peaceful and I think um, thoughtful individuals, Americans showed up and they started at the Washington Monument, walked all the way along the reflection pool to the Lincoln Memorial, and they gathered on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and they heard uh, impassioned presentations, brief speeches by, by doctors, uh, by scientists, civic leaders, public health leaders, media, firefighters, uh, various other groups, religious groups. It really was an extraordinary event. An extraordinary event. Uh, and if it were only half its size and if it were only half the time uh, that, uh, that was required for those uh, discussions, uh, in public, uh, in, in the nation's capital, it would have been a success. I, I want to turn to you and, and ask you uh, also about the, uh, the panel, the Senate panel, uh, Monday, uh, Senator Ron Johnson leading that, and your, your reaction to that, and the fact that it is now clear that there is a movement to take on mandates and to thoroughly question government choices that are being made about public the public health of uh, 300 million Americans. There's no doubt on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, I told Americans, there's three circles. There's a circle of medical freedom, and that's uh, linked to a circle of social freedom, which is linked to a circle of economic freedom. And that if that circle of medical freedom is touched, let alone broken, all the other circles fracture that if one loses control over their own health autonomy, everything from there begins to crumble. We went into the five-hour Senate panel appropriately named a second opinion on COVID-19. I co-moderated it with Senator Johnson. And we had dozens of doctors, of scientists, some of the most published people in the world. The moment where you ask everyone in attendance, whether on the panel, whether testifying, or whether in the audience, uh, anyone who's ever seen medical professionals have seen or witnessed uh, or experienced a, a moment of censure uh, in their careers, uh, and particularly in this pandemic, to raise their hands. Your estimate was uh, about 80%. Is that correct? That's correct. That was a jaw-dropping moment where people basically gave their testimony of personal and professional injury for their attempts to try to compassionately help people through the illness by putting their best efforts forward in treating patients. And we're talking doctors, scientists, nurses, patients themselves. It was extraordinary. And, and from that, uh, Senator Johnson has been along, I believe, with uh, Senator Rand Paul in particular, but I'd like to get your judgment on that. 
those two senators have made all the difference in the world within their uh, their body, uh, the Senate, uh, in confronting orthodoxy, and and a peculiar arrogance on the part of I, I will just say his name very quickly, Dr. Fauci, the CDC, the NIH. Uh, the public health agencies that have simply basically said to the American people at various points over the past two years, this is the way it is. This is our judgment. It's final. We, in Fauci famously saying he is science, uh, complete and utter arrogance and balderdash, uh, not often uh, served up simultaneously as he did. Yeah, your thoughts? Completely agree, Lou. The demagoguery that Americans have seen out of uh, these public health officials in Washington uh, is of the greatest concern. I told Laura Ingram this week on the Ingram Angle that I think Senator Ron Johnson has a better handle on pandemic response than anybody in Washington. And Johnson is asking the right questions. He is asking for fair balance. He's asking for scientific discourse. In fact, at one point in time in the meeting, Two eminent scientists, Dr. Robert Malone, who's one of the early inventors right. of messenger RNA technology, and Dr. David Wiseman, who's a former uh, vaccine J&J development scientist, they disagreed on a point. They actually got up and they went to the part of the room and they had a sidebar conversation. And I pointed out to Johnson, I said, that's what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to have disagreement and discourse in order to carry medical progress forward. And that has uh, been certainly absent amongst our public health officials, government officials over the course of the past two years. Uh, and, and whether it's mandates, whether it is quarantines, isolation, uh, social distancing or mass, uh, there should have been greater debate at every instance. And But a, a fearful public uh, accepted uh, because from every quarter, whether government officials, uh, elected officials, uh, or, or the medical community, uh, the orders were coming down fast and furious. We now get the sense very clearly, uh, a sense that that was a, a, a period uh, in which our freedoms were being dishonored uh, and truth uh, was not always uh, the first uh, the first concern on the part of the public health agencies uh, or some of their leaders. Uh, your, your sense about what we can do now in public policy to change what has been a, a, a an experience over the past two years that I think a lot of a lot of people are going to be embarrassed about over the course of uh, of history. I pointed out that not a single hospital or healthcare system claims to be a center of excellence for COVID-19. We are two years into this loop. These same hospitals that have the bravado in heart care or cancer care, not a single one claims to be innovative or have good outcomes for COVID-19. There are no hospital innovative approaches by our blue ribbon institutions like Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Duke, Harvard, nothing. And it's because of regulatory capture. The, the agencies have basically floated down protocols with uh, strings atti attached to it that, that prohibit uh, innovation 
that prohibit use of appropriately uh, utilized off-label medications in combination. Patients get better care as outpatients. And when they move into the inpatient realm, we heard from the father of critical care, Dr. Paul Merrick. He has more publications in critical care than anybody in the world in history. He stated that the hospital care in the United States is inadequate. It is far too little. The doses of drugs that are used and the drugs that are offered like remdesivir simply are not safe or effective. And he indicated that lives have been lost in the hospital because of these regulatory processes and these policies by the NIH and others. Is remdesivir still recommended by the CDC? Uh, I know that it was uh, in the initial stages of the pandemic. It's still recommended by the National Institutes of Health. And as Merrick reviewed, there are more people who actually die as a result of remdesivir because it causes kidney and liver failure than are helped. And why is it that no one, uh, well, I shouldn't say no one, certainly you, Dr. Malone, others, uh, that uh, seemed you've brought along with you over the course of time uh, are being very clear about this. Why isn't there greater clarity uh, with big pharma to the American people. Lou, there has been no Bethesda conference. You know, I'm a cardiologist and we have um, illnesses or problems that we need input on. We hold a Bethesda conference. It's an open conference, ac academics, practicing doctors, uh, pharmaceutical companies, the uh, federal agencies, and we actually hash through the data. And there are better approaches in the hospital but our agencies were going to have to let down their arrogance and start listening to the experts who are taking care of patients and get things uh, in good stead. We should actually relieve hospitals of any duty to perform a protocol and any tethering of reimbursement of care of COVID-19 to these protocols and let doctors use their innovation in clinical care in taking care of patients. In fact, I think the word uh, protocol is now synonymous with incentives in which hospitals actually were at one point focused uh, many of them on the incentives to declare a patient a victim of COVID uh, rather than whatever the ancillary or accompanying disease was that may have been the underlying disease uh, for the person's admission to the hospital in the first place, right? Right. Dr. Aaron Carradine, former professor at UC Irvine, laid out these what's called perverse incentives, how hospitals are incentivized to actually use remdesivir despite its poor outcomes, how they're incentivized to uh, falsely code COVID-19 as the principal issue when there are other issues at hand, and really how deep and distorted this has become all through what's called regulatory capture. What has been the response of the pharmaceutical company making remdesivir? There's been no response. The uh, you know the intellectual property rights through Gilead go back to China on the use of remdesivir. The Chinese have holdings on it, and we know at this point in time there's far better approaches. You know, if you were in a hospital in uh, Tokyo, Japan, you'd be receiving first line drugs in combination, including ivermectin. Patients should be receiving this drug. They should be receiving monoclonal antibodies. The drug Sotirivimab by GlaxoSmithKline, Operation Warp Speed, a terrific product, reduces hospitalization death by 85%. I think any patient being considered what, what for the hospital. What was that drug again? It's called Sotirivimab, Lube. It's by GlaxoSmithKline. It's a monoclonal antibody, and sadly, it's in short supply. States like Florida and Ron DeSantis are absolutely incensed on how they're not getting a straight story from the federal government on the supply line of this important product. Well, 
it, this is worth just throwing in parenthetically for the audience, uh, some of whom may be shocked to learn that we are still 97% dependent upon China uh, for pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical ingredients, uh, China and India in the case of the uh, pharmaceutical ingredients uh, as well. Uh, this is not an independent nation right now. Uh, President Trump achieved energy independence, but no one has even come close uh, to doing so in pharmaceuticals, and it's a huge, huge problem. Uh, corporate America is ignoring uh, a, a Supreme Court ruling about mask mandates. Uh, they're uh, ignoring a Supreme Court ruling uh, about uh, mandates, period for private uh, employers who have 100 or more employees. Uh, this is outrageous, uh, but it is also at the same time uh, a sign that we have to get rid of these uh, authoritarian impulses, whether they're in government, public health, or in corporate America. Uh, don't you agree? We need egalitarian processes immediately. I think that heads will have to roll at the um, at the top of these federal agencies, we had a uh, former White House advisor and World Health Organization advisor, Paul Alexander, present the data on masks. And you're exactly right. Masks have failed to stop the spread of illness. They're basically ineffective. Uh, doctors uh, agree that masks can be worn in the hospital by healthcare professionals and others. But public masking has no role in, uh, in our society, it certainly has no role in the schools, and it's got to go. Now, do you think there's a, a relationship to the decision by the Biden administration uh, now, uh, just a short while ago, to withdraw the uh, COVID-19 from the, uh, uh, the mandate in a six, you know, after the court's 6-3 ruling? Uh, do you think there was any, I mean, that's a, that's a sign of progress, is it not, for those who do not want those mandates? Uh, to see the, <laughs> it's strange to say this, the White House actually following the law and the decision of the Supreme Court. I think it's needed and welcomed because, you know, other business leaders are looking for some type of signal. You know, in this cloud of fear, uh, uh, leaders ha have really lost their courage. You know, most companies don't feel comfortable making an independent decision on anything related to COVID-19. I, you know, I, I congratulate Starbucks. Uh, Starbucks came out and said, you know what, we've looked at everything, we're dropping our mandates for vaccination. And J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, the CEO, going the other way, insisting as of February 1st that he's, by God, going to demand his employees have vaccinations or they're going to be terminated. I mean, it, it, this is, it, despite the Supreme Court, despite the White House backing off of the mandates uh, and other people of reason and, and uh, obviously good faith, doing so. You know, there are side-by-side -side examples that are amazing. So I was in D.C. and within uh, the District of Columbia, I couldn't walk into a Starbucks without showing the vaccine card. But yet a few miles away, we stayed at a hotel in Pentagon City. We walked in and no masks, no vaccine cards, and we had coffee and breakfast and everything was fine. It's the same viral illness. It's the same disease. It's the same people. These side-by-side -side examples show you that something's wrong. I know that you're limited for time, and I, and I want to get to the crux of this for the audience. First, uh, your counsel to this audience, to the American public, about what they should do if they contract COVID-19. 
Most important point is now Omicron. The CDC says it's 99% Omicron. It replicates in the nasal cavity 70 times faster than the prior versions of the virus. You do get immunity to the uh, Delta variant, which is great afterwards. It's a brief illness, but it must be killed in the nose, Lou. So we're using virucidal nasal washes. So povidone iodine, 10% povidone iodine or betadine, you buy it for, for just a few dollars online. Half a teaspoon of this brown liquid in a shot glass of water over the sink, squirt it up in the nose with a bulb syringe or spray bottle, sniff it back and spit it out, do it twice on each side, gargle with the rest. That effectively kills the virus. That's the most effective thing that can be done. Oh, if I, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. And if, if the iodine can't be tolerated, you can do the same with hydrogen peroxide, uh, just three quarters of a teaspoon, shot glass of water, same procedure. And uh, if it stings, that means it's too strong for the individual. It can be more dilute. But the virucidal nasal wash is far and away, supported by 12 trials, Lou, and just a few dollars per household is, is the single most important thing one can do. My wife and I learned uh, that lesson with hydrogen peroxide. Uh, we learned to adjust uh, <laughs> to dilute, uh, dilute it uh, in, in quick order. So, uh, And by the way, we still are, you know, Thank God uh, it's been sex successful for us. Uh, children, mass, vaccination, your recommendation. Well, we had a presentation again, Aaron Carity, who's a psychiatrist, former professor at UC Irvine. It's clear that masks are damaging our children. It's, they're damaging the, their, their development, their learning development. They, they don't uh, prevent the spread of COVID-19. The children are now largely immune. You know, by the way, the kids are back at school. We've had still no large school outbreaks. That tells you that the children are an immunologic buffer. Now, for the same reason, the children don't need the vaccines. I give the presentation on myocarditis or heart inflammation. The FDA agrees the vaccines cause heart inflammation in children. Attempts to normalize it or minimize it, in my view, are uh, irresponsible. In one case of myocarditis is far too many. We had a man in the room, Lou, whose son died of myocarditis needlessly after taking one of the vaccines. Have have you had any personal, uh, has there been any kind of repercussion to you as a result of your, your uh, and Dr. Malone and, and others' valiant efforts to get the American people the truth, or at least to begin searching for truth within the medical, uh, public health, pharmaceutical industries? Lou, it's been extraordinary. Uh, you know, I've had a perfect academic track record. I'm the most published person in my field in the world in history. I led a, a crack, a, a, a absolutely crack research team at my institution, a perfect program administration. I got large grants. I discovered how to treat COVID-19. I put drugs in the combination. I published my findings. I proved it worked. I testified in the U.S. Senate. And as a reward for that, Lou, I was effectively terminated from my job as an academic physician and had to transfer my uh, practice to a private practice. Now I have a lawsuit on my hand because the health system is trying to keep me off of important shows like yours, uh, bringing the word of truth to Americans. Uh, it, well, I, I want to just say, and I'm sure I speak for millions and millions of people, uh, doctor, we're eternally grateful for your courage, uh, for your uh, and bringing your knowledge and expertise uh, to the forefront to deal with this critically important public health uh, issue, this pandemic. 
you know, you, you've you've made uh, America better and uh, saved, all of, I'm sure, a lot of lives in so doing. Uh, what what is next for you? What's next for us is, I think, a critical juncture where the mandates need to be fully dropped across the board. You saw the United Kingdom uh, recently just capitulate and mm -hmm. drop basically almost everything on pandemic response. Ireland followed, at least once, Eastern European country followed. And, and while we're in this fracture where, you know, one district is going towards, you know, restrictive draconian measures and the other one is open. Opening up, we're going to have to get to some uniformity across the United States. Americans are fatigued on this. They want to go back to normal. I think right now, if we dropped all the mandates, we simply treated high-risk patients as they come forward, uh, we could close this pandemic now. The, the, I announced actually last night on national TV, the view of the panel was the emergency phase of this is over. There is no more emergency. It's time for America to get back to normal business. Let me close with two quick questions. Israel now advising a fourth shot. Uh, are we over vaccinating uh, our immune systems in this country? The World Health Organization says we are, Lou. They're warning that it's actually going to weaken the immune system. The human body cannot keep taking these injections. Uh, we've exhausted any benefit of them, and we need to move on. And I want, as we close, to get your, uh, your reaction to, uh, I, I was talking about your courage, uh, Joe Rogan. Uh, certainly now is under great uh, attack. Uh, he, he's a strong fellow, and I'm sure will uh, will endure and prevail. But your thoughts about the attack on him and his role in bringing these issues, uh, popularizing those issues uh, himself, uh, for which I think he deserves immense credit as well. I agree. He deserves immense credit, and it started with his own treatment. He he, you know, received treatment for. COVID-19, appropriate treatment, including monoclonal drug, uh, antibodies and other drugs in combination. Then Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of the um, Green Bay Packers, did as well. It started with then. And when Joe Rogan, you know, it took about a month for me to get on a show because of scheduling. When I went on, I cited the data, Lou. I showed slides. Yep. I showed every single data point. Now people are reading every word and making ad hominem attacks. I just responded to D Magazine here in Dallas. And I said very nicely, I'm glad they're reading every word. <laughs> now they should actually, now, you know, let's start to have a dialogue and discussion and let's stop the attacks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and again, uh, Dr. Credit to you. Thanks so much for everything that you're doing for this country. We appreciate you being, being with us, and uh, I look forward to our, our next discussion, I hope, soon. Thanks so much, Dr. Thanks, Dr. Peter McCullough. And now we turn to our next guest. He is a, an accomplished computer scientist, a PhD in computer science. He has studied throughout his career in and researched uh, in Israel. He is a formidable, formidable mind uh, tackling deep issues associated with deep learning. And Eli David is our guest here next. Thanks for being with us as we come together here to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. And what a fight it has become. It's almost impossible to list, to categorize the number of outrageously chaotic and disastrous public policy initiatives undertaken by this Biden White House throwing our borders wide open to illegal immigration, compelling public support by the, uh, by the billions of dollars for illegal immigrants, denigrating hardworking American families as they do so, 
denigrating their aspirations as well for their children. Those children uh, being indoctrinated in our public schools these days, radicalized in our colleges and universities, and the Biden revisionism of American history, his efforts to nationalize our electoral system, to destroy states' rights and federalism, to create a one-party system of government, and of course that one party would be his. The radical Dems who are bending the party toward creation of neo-Marxist totalitarian government. That's not, by the way, if there's any doubt, hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. It is the bald, straightforward truth of this time in America, this very moment. All the while, events taking place around the world are inexorably advancing toward conflict, in my opinion. Xi Jinping is displaying the unbound hubris of an authoritarian leader who means to dominate each and every continent, to plant China's flag, it seems, on both poles and then hold dominion over the world. No less authoritarian, but perhaps slightly less expansive in his ambition, but every bit as much a communist dictator, Russian President Vladimir Putin has massed his troops on various pressure points along the western Russian border, likely flashpoints now that his troops and tanks and artillery are pointed east, whether at the Ukraine, Belarus, or Poland. And all this while, Europe is led by new and untested leaders. The NATO alliance seems confused about how to respond to the Russians and their threats and uncertain of its very nature and uh, future and reliability of the member states that make up NATO. And the Middle East now seems an open and rough road for the Iranians, but open nonetheless. Strengthened relations with both Russia and China, while American leadership is not only inexperienced, but arrogant and indolent. A Pentagon that can't handle even a surrender in Afghanistan, as this president through more than 20 years of military engagement in Afghanistan and surrounding nations to the wind without consideration, let alone strategy or purpose. And in context, all the while, each of the leaders I've mentioned is making every effort to keep their economies working, their societies functioning, while they deal with a global pandemic that is testing in particular the leaders of Europe and the United States. Whether in the next phase in development of effective vaccines, treatments, and research and development of new medical and pharmaceutical defenses against the ever-evolving variants of the China virus, or perhaps the more than likely arrival of an altogether new virus that could possibly be even more lethal, more disruptive than the Wuhan virus. Today, we invited Eli David, PhD, computer scientist, venture capitalist, uh, and original thinker. I think without peer, frankly, if I may say, to join us to share with us his considerable intellect, his knowledge, and broad analytical skills to take up all that is happening in our hyper-complex world. Eli, great to have you with us. We thank you so very much for being on The Great America Show. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let's, let's wade right in. Uh, we are looking at a world that is chaotic. Uh, it is uh, dangerous. Uh, it is, uh, it seemingly is not being covered any longer by the news media that seems to have taken on the role of uh, puppets for their corporate masters, it's certainly in the United States. 
Uh, what, what is your impression of the times in which uh, we all live? Frankly, until two years ago, I was an optimist, optimist in almost everything, in civilization, in technology, in everything. But the past two years have made me, I wouldn't say pessimist, but not as optimistic as, as I used to be. There were things that I used to take for granted, such as evidence-based science. We take decisions, the, the governments make decisions, at least the Western world take decisions based on data, based on evidence, based on science. But I think these are the biggest victims of COVID. So I would say COVID is indeed a deadly pandemic. It killed many of these things, evidence-based data, science, and things that since the Middle Ages, we thought that uh, we are dependent on them. We are decades back or maybe even centuries back uh, due to what COVID did to us, or more accurately, our response to COVID. Our response to, to COVID has been, we are here now more than two years uh, in, a, in experience with the, the pandemic, the Wuhan virus, uh, as it's variously called, uh, the China virus. But we don't, it seems, it seems clear to, I think, most Americans, have a public health system that's two years smarter, two years better, uh, that has two years of knowledge about how to contend and to defeat uh, the virus, uh, how to save lives. We're better at it, but it doesn't seem like two years worth of progress in the effort. Your thoughts? Now, let me make an admission I've never made anywhere. When, the, when COVID started and in early 2020, I wasn't supportive of lockdowns, but I kind of understood them. I understood that, well, maybe this is what we need. I was in, pub, in crowded places. Not only I was wearing masks, I was always wearing N95 masks. Right. I was worried because we didn't have data. So if there is no data, maybe it makes sense to err on the side of caution. But that was at the beginning of the pandemic when we were we were seeing videos coming out of China of people randomly collapsing in the streets. By the way, it never happened anywhere in the Western world. We know that those videos were fake. But that was the beginning. Now, a few months after that, already I remember in May 2020, the great uh, Stanford uh, physician and statistician John Ioannidis, the, by the way, the most cited physician in the world, he did a rigorous analysis of data showing that COVID is for the vast majority of the population, for those who are not non-elderly and are not uh, uh, immunocompromised, it is no more deadlier than annual flu. And that was back then. Now we have much more data, we have vaccines, we have effective treatments. Looking at excess mortality, which is the only number that actually counts, by any measure we look at it, COVID is no longer pandemic, it's endemic. It's just, we have 200 annual um, respiratory viruses. Now we have another one. There is no data-based uh, reason to look at COVID as a pandemic and take all these uh, mind-bogglingly stupid steps the governments do, uh, the restrictions, that the, the economic harm that all the governments do. These are not based on any data no matter how we look at the data we have in hand. And stunning has been the, the uh, I guess, the intramural, I would put it, uh, conflicts that have arisen within public health 
whether they're doctors or research scientists or in point of fact, uh, simply mouthpieces for a, for a government, in this case, the government of, of Joe Biden. Uh, Dr. Fauci has become Mr. Science. I have never heard anyone with the hubris to say, I am science. Uh, I, I just was stunned. I mean, what was your reaction to that uh, as a man who is a scientist, who is a, a, a diligent researcher uh, and is seeking truth uh, and, uh, and effective realities uh, every day? Oh, it, I was shocked. That, that's my reaction. You know, science is where we all doubt. Science is never settled. We always should, and we took it for granted, that science welcomes doubts, welcomes questions. So somebody coming and saying, I am science, the science is settled, that's just, just crazy. And the funny thing is that the settled science changes every day. At the beginning, the same Fauci said, don't wear masks, then do wear masks, then double mask. And each time he says, yes, science is settled. And at the same time, there were experts who are the foremost experts in the world for expressing their opinion on this. For example, Martin Kuldorf of Harvard University, one of the co-authors of the great Barrington Declaration, together with leading researchers from Stanford, from Oxford University, they expressed their expert medical scientist, scientific-based opinion, and they were qualified to express it. Now we see from the leaked emails that uh, the NIH is, uh, uh, and Fauci are exchanging emails how to publicly attack these scientists instead of engaging in a scientific discussion with them. So I know that he's saying he is science, but his behavior, his comments are anything but scientific since the beginning of this pandemic. And, and you mentioned Fauci, his, I guess, well, a counterpoint uh, would be Florida. Uh, where Governor DeSantis has been very clear about using um, empirical bases for public policy choices that he's making. He has actually been regarding science, uh, high, pre, uh, giving it priority uh, in his public policy choices. And yet there is this ideological divide in the country between the left, which uh, claims science, uh, and the uh, conservatives and uh, moderate Republicans uh, who are, in point of fact, following, following science. This is indeed crazy. It has turned into something political. In a rational world, that decisions are uh, being made based on evidence and data, the whole world should have looked like Florida. All the leaders of the world should have looked like Ron DeSantis. Every step of what he has done so far has been evidence-based. He made the mistake initially of supporting lockdown, as many scientists did, as even I uh, understood that, because there was not much data. But the moment the data was, was available, Ron DeSantis, he, uh, he consulted with many of the leading scientists of uh, having different opinions. He listened to them. He learned where the data is, where evidence is, and he took measures based on that. And one of the greatest things that he has done and other leaders should learn from him uh, there are some things that, at some point, that we cannot do anything. Uh, as we say in medicine, first, do no harm. Sometimes the actions cause much more damage than doing nothing. Uh, we see that, for example, in border restrictions. Almost all countries have 
different kinds of border restrictions. It didn't help. It has never helped. It's not helping, but still they keep on doing that. Florida, to me, it looks like one of the, the only rational places on earth. I was in Florida a few months ago and um, it, it was just unbelievable seeing how a normal life looks like and contrast that with the crazy uh, life we are um, being forced to live in all the other countries and states. Now, let me turn to uh, your, your discipline and that is computer science, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, deep thinking. Uh, your view of what uh, we've been able to garner about specifically first uh, the pandemic or now the endemic as you as you put it uh, what did we what did you learn that came specifically from an analysis of the data deep thinking artificial intelligence if anything there are two disciplines in analysis of data one discipline is making first assumptions about how real world looks like, how the behavior um, is running, and then building models to predict that. That is the kind of models run by uh, uh, the Fer uh, Ferguson, Neil Ferguson from, uh, uh, from the UK that, that published that scary model of exponential growth and many different modelers. In Israel, we have those modelers. Essentially, you make an assumption and then run the model, and you reach crazy conclusions. Um, by the way, in Israel, there was a model uh, just a few weeks ago that predicted that in 20 days, there would be a million cases a day. After those 20 days, there were only 10,000 cases a day. So model was off by just 100 times. Where were those middle million cases? Uh, where was it projecting that? Uh, in Israel, the United States, where? In, in Israel, in Israel. There was a- And the population of Israel is how many? Uh, entire population is a little over 9 million. <laughs> that, that, that was crazy. That was crazy. But that, that when you make assumptions, you run the model. Yep. And, uh, and the thing is, they keep on doing that. You look at the official models of the, in the UK, in the, the CDC, in the US, in Israel, they keep on using the same models of exponential growth. And in this pandemic, we'll learn that you cannot do that in real world. What you must do is the second approach that, for example, in my discipline, we'll look at that. We approach the data by saying, we, the experts, the humans, we don't know anything. We cannot assume anything. We need to collect data and analyze the data and let the data speak. To give you an example, we've all seen the research papers showing that in laboratory conditions, face masks do prevent transmission. They do reduce viral load. But in real world, when you look at the data, you compare adjacent states that one of them mandated masks and the other didn't. When you compare them, you see no difference. So the reason could be that uh, um, they are not protecting. The reason could be that people are not wearing masks properly. The reason can be anything, but the data from real world tell us that masks are not effective. End of story. So the thing that became vivid in this pandemic you cannot model the world with assumptions. You must look at real world data and let the data speak. Mm. Unfortunately, that's not the prevalent approach. <laughs> yes, you're exactly right. And, uh, and, but you know, I, I've always felt that those masks, at least when I was uh, going out to uh, the, the, the tractor supply store or wherever I was, 
you know, I felt a little better having that mascot as I walked in. And now, uh, you know, I, I've acceded to the, the reality uh, that there, there just isn't there just isn't a difference uh, that is at least appreciably worth the, uh, the, the aggravation of it all. And then I have an 11 year old uh, granddaughter who told me point blank, you know, uh, grandpa this, and I was suggesting she might want to wear a mask when we went in. And she said, no, it's, uh, it's not good for me uh, to do that. And I said, okay. And did a little research and she was exactly right it was the fact that you know 11 year olds uh, are outwitting me at my age is a little disconcerting uh and embarrassing but the fact of the matter is uh she's she's in line at 11 with the empirical real world and the research uh, that you and others have uh, have turned up so first of all she's a very smart 11 years old obviously and uh I would dare say she's smarter than many of the people who are making our public policy. She looked at the data and said, well, there is no data that masks are effective, therefore they're not effective. Many of the public policy leaders that look at the data, they say the mask is not effective, therefore we need to double mask. After that, I guess they will say we need to triple mask, etc. They are never accepting that uh, a hypothesis was wrong. And that's the basic of science. No, the, the Nobel laureate uh, Richard Feynman, he was one of the core teams of the Manhattan Project in the right. 1940s. He once said, the essence of science is that when you make a theory, when you have a theory and the data, the experiment contradicts it, your theory is wrong. It doesn't matter who you are, how famous you are, how many publications you have, your theory is wrong. That's the essence of science. He said that 60 years ago, uh, eight years ago. We've all forgotten about that. It's, it's true. And, and chilling was the, the earlier comments from Elon Musk, uh, the world's richest man, uh, an, an intrepid uh, entrepreneur, uh, and highly, obviously, successful. But he talking about AI, and he employs obviously artificial intelligence in Tesla, in uh, in SpaceX, uh, and who knows what else. But he talked about it with dread, uh, very concerned, uh, talking about uh, nuclear weapons are to him less frightening than the the possibilities with deep learning with AI. Your reaction. First of all, I, I regard Elon Musk as one of the smartest people uh, um, that, uh, that, uh, that I know personally. I once met him. He is a very bright person. And by the way, he was so bright that early on in the COVID said the entire government response is crazy. He was one of the few guys very early on saw the data, reached a conclusion. I partially agree with Elon Musk and I'm partially concerned, but due to different things. I do believe that in the distant future, when deep learning becomes smarter and smarter, and uh, at some point in the future, I do believe uh, computers will become as smart as we are and smarter than us. There is no theoretical barrier for that. There is no reason why it shouldn't happen. But I don't think it will happen in the next few years or even next decade or two. It will take a long time. It will be over the distant horizon. And at that point, Yes, Elon Musk is correct to be um, afraid of that. But, uh, but I think there are reasons to be scared about that right now, not in the distant future. 
For example, when we're speaking of autonomous weapons, weapons that that autonomously themselves based on AI make the decision when to fire, what to target, uh, uh, who to target, etc. In the Western countries, uh, we have our own high morale code. We are very careful about that. Uh, uh, we will not just deploy AI-based weapons because we know the risks of that. But not all the countries have those kind of limitations. You look at some other countries, they're openly stating that they are developing autonomous uh, AI-based systems. And to me, that is a scarier thing. In the distant future, AI may be smarter than humans, and that's a different scenario, and Elon Musk is right about that. But already now, in the next few years, in the next decade or two, some countries may um, develop and deploy autonomous weapons, and that, that's a scary scenario. Let me, before we go too much farther, uh, just go a few questions. Do masks work? Do vaccines work? Is the virus getting milder or or not, based on your analysis? Again, I can just analyze that based on data. I'm a data person. I'm not a virologist. I'm not an immunologist. Looking at the data, I would say the following. There is no real world evidence that masks work. When comparing adjacent countries, states, some of them mandating masks, some of them not mandating masks, we don't see any difference, any statistically significant difference in the spread of, uh, of the virus. So my conclusion is that it's not working for reasons that I don't know. Just looking at the data can say it does not work. For the vaccines, looking at the data, there is good indication that vaccines, especially for the elderly and at-risk populations, it's reducing the risk of severe illness and death. We, right. we are clearly seeing that. Uh, but it is not stopping the transmission of the virus. If for the first version, the alpha version of COVID, we saw some good evidence that the vaccines also reduce transmission. For Delta variant, that was already severely impaired uh, and uh, it almost couldn't stop them. For Omicron, we see the data and the efficacy of vaccines for stopping transmission is practically zero. So my personal database conclusion is that uh, vaccines are good, especially for the at-risk and elderly population. They reduce the risk of severe illness and hospitalization, but vaccines do nothing to reduce transmission. And so COVID passports are just, just ridiculous. The premise of COVID passports is um, those who are vaccinated will transmit uh, the, the virus less, and that's simply wrong. And we see cr crazy public policies based on that, like the recent deportation of Novak Djokovic from Australia. Right. Uh, th th that was incredible. If you saw my, my tweet, I, just, I was furious over that. There is no evidence uh, regarding that. No, and I lockdowns, looking at the data, we can safely say today that lockdowns directly and indirectly killed many more people than they saved. Lockdowns are probably the biggest public policy failure, um, at least during the past decades. With that summation, uh, I, you know, I have to say, I've been looking at Israel throughout uh, the pandemic and following the research, particularly over the past year. And it seems to me that uh, almost without fail, uh, Israel has been months ahead 
three months, four months, whatever it might be, ahead of anything being generated in the United States when it came to the uh, to vaccines, with the to the virus, the variants. Uh, then comes word uh, this week that uh, Israel is looking at a, a fourth booster shot. And I'm, I'm scratching my head, trying to figure out how that lines up with all of the other research done in Israel uh, and the experience uh, with the pandemic. Your thoughts about four boosters, five, six boosters, seven, what is, how far are we to go with this? What happened in Israel, and especially Israel, is a great example of the success of the private sector and failure of government. Israel is the second country in the world after U.S. in terms of absolute number of technology startup companies, not per capita, in absolute numbers, even though we're a small company. So great success for the private sector. For government, the Israeli government indeed made every mistake possible during this pandemic and including some mistakes that were unique uh, to Israel. So how did the fourth vaccine got that approval? The, the scientists uh, said, based on the, um, the leaked reports in the Israeli media, the scientists said they need to run uh, experiments to see if it's effective. Politi politicians pressured them that there is no time and miraculously they got approved. And so far we have initial results the efficacy is completely disappointing. A few days ago, it was published. So again, there is no evidence-based um, decision-making. It is just trying to show that you're uh, making decisions or to quote a line from my favorite 1980s British TV series, as prime minister, it says, politicians like to panic. That's their substitute for achievement. And that's what we see in Israel. Well, it's what we're also seeing. I think it's... Uh... I, th I think we can be highly confident of this. We're also seeing it certainly in uh, in the United States as well. I, I want to turn, if I may, to to the broader the the geopolitics, uh, the and big data, deep thinking, artificial intelligence, and its applications. We are looking at a world right now, as I discussed uh, just briefly, opening the uh, the show. I, whether it is Russian troops on its western border, whether it is Xi Jinping threatening Taiwan, taking over Hong Kong, uh, the uh, aggressive, the aggressive expansionism uh, is is now uh, bordering on the lunatic uh, from these two communist countries because Russia remains communist by any definition. Uh, what? What can? What are your thoughts? What is your thinking about the state of the world, including Europe, of, of course? One, one of my biggest concerns for the next few years is the is, is what you mentioned, the geopolitics around Taiwan. Uh, something that many people don't know is that almost every advanced semiconductor uh, computer processor today that is uh, built, it is built in Taiwan. Right. The, there are great American uh, companies, for example, NVIDIA. NVIDIA is the company that is powering the entire AI revolution. When you're doing advanced AI, it doesn't matter for computer vision, speech recognition, text understanding. It's all, almost all of that is based on NVIDIA chips. It's uh, due to that NVIDIA's market cap just in 2015 was $17 billion. Today, it's getting close to $700 billion. But one thing that many people don't know is all of that 
semiconductor, the advanced seven nanometer semiconductor. Most of that is built in Taiwan. Almost all of that is built in right. Taiwan. A little of that in South Korea. So I'm looking at the AMD, the great American company, the semiconductor company, almost all of the processors are again built in Taiwan. To the extent that today on US soil, there is no manufacturing plant that is capable of creating these advanced seven nanometer uh, hardware. And, and that's a, 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 a huge strategic concern. And the previous Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, was really concerned about that. He convinced the Taiwanese uh, TSMC, the biggest producer in the world, to open a, 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 process, a producing factory in, in Arizona. It will take a few years for that to work, but, but that just that's just uh, the beginning. Taiwan is the hub. Taiwan is just next to China. And if something happens to Taiwan or there is a crisis there, the entire advanced uh, semiconductor production of the world will come to almost a halt. And that, that's a grave scenario. And align, line that up with the fact that the United States is 97% dependent upon China for pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical ingredients. Uh, for uh, for even advanced technology, it's uh, our dependency on China. Uh, people should understand uh, as they get very exercised about China that right now China has uh, hostages that it is holding against the United States, whether they be Apple or whether they be other companies that are invested and whose intellectual capital they actually uh, have a stranglehold on as well. Uh, it's it's difficult to imagine a rational, let alone, we don't have to get into the issue of how intelligent Americans are, but that a rational people would have ever put the, uh, a superpower in a dependent position against, if you don't want to call China an enemy, at least a competitor. The, indeed, there are multiple uh, dependencies, U.S. on China and China and the U.S., and of course, as we look year after year, the, the uh, strength of China, the technological strength of China is just increasing rapidly in every area. I see that in artificial intelligence, but in different areas as well. Um, again, uh, looking as an Israeli that has vested interest in the success of the Western world led by the US, that is really concerning me, seeing that they, the global weakness of US and, the, and US policy. The, in the previous administration, um, it, it looked like it understood the strategic threat and uh, it engaged in the in, in, in negotiations for a better deal because yeah, no doubt yeah. the person who led the administration was a professional negotiator. My concern is that that's not happening right now. Yeah, I think the best that we can ask uh, all of us who care about the uh, the free world, uh, the United States, uh, Israel. Uh, all uh, democracies, democracies around the world, and there are admittedly fewer of them than there uh, were 10 years ago, uh, we had better hope that uh, Joe Biden remains, uh, I'll put it this way, passive and doesn't get uh, egregiously uh, aggressive uh, given the limitations that are obvious for his administration and his, uh, and his leadership. I, I've said that about as delicately as I could say it. Uh, let's let's turn also to to Russia. Uh, what is uh, what is what is your judgment about what Putin is up to, and or do you give it any mind? 
Um, I don't have any firm opinion on that because um, and China, I, I see closely the technology and the, the huge technological leaps. Uh, the situation with, with Russia looks less about technology and technological dominance and much more with uh, um, a, a battle of uh, once, one former superpower that wants to regain its position as a, a superpower and um, it, it looks like that the under, other side of the ocean there is a uh, they, they do view a not very strong um, administration. That, that it looks, but again, I, I look at that as an onlooker uh, and a very concerned onlooker. Yeah, well, well I, I join you in that concern. Uh, and it's also, there's a bit of a cautionary tale in this for, uh, for those of our listeners who aren't aware of where hypersonic missile technology originated. Uh, it, it was a byproduct of, uh, uh, of the laboratories, uh, in particular DARPA in the United States, but also in the Soviet Union, uh, back in the 1900, uh, 1990s. And both the Soviet Union and Russia, uh, the successor state, uh, and the United States, over the course of these past uh, 30 years, just sort of put it aside. Meanwhile, China is now foremost, uh, it has the most advanced hypersonic missiles technology. And we're talking about uh, hypersonic uh, missiles that move at, uh, let's say, an average speed of nine or 10 uh, times uh, Mach speed, the, the speed of sound. It's really stunning to see how clumsy and uh, uh, gratuitously we have squandered uh, intellectual property in the United States in particular. Uh, it, it's it's just mind-numbing to think that we have what we have, have simply thrown uh, toward the the communist Chinese as a as a gift from the from the indifferent Americans. And that's only what we see. There's no less concern in developments of things that we don't see. The cyber warfare. Mm -hmm. um, China, Russia, they have, uh, to get same as the US, they have advanced cyber capabilities. And um, even though every now and then we hear about nation state cyber attacks, they're just small scale. In a, in a, in a uh, total confrontation scenario, my big worry is that we're going to see cyber attacks that are going to uh, completely bring national infrastructures to a halt, things that we have never imagined. The electricity grades, the water supply, uh, different energy supply. These are realistic scenarios in the next uh, major confrontation. So it doesn't need to be supersonic missiles to be really scary. Well, I'm, I'm scared enough, I have to say, uh, but uh, we'll continue to, to probe the borders of uh, fear uh, and optimism. And I've really enjoyed this uh, conversation. I, we always give uh, our guests the, the last word, uh, Eli. And if you will, I, I'd just like to hear, uh, what was it uh, that Elon Musk said that uh, uh, he was uh, afraid of when it came to artificial intelligence summoning uh, the devil? Uh, what is your what is your greatest fear about artificial intelligence, and your greatest uh, your greatest hope? Regarding AI, I do have my concerns. Some of them I share with Elon Musk, but but I'm much more 
optimistic about that. I, I think AI will do much more good to the world uh, than the uh, those uh, scary things. One of the things, for example, and I've co-founded a company working on that, is using artificial intelligence for better healthcare, for predicting diseases early on, for better treatment. I think we we're going to see in the next few years and decades a revolution in healthcare uh, thanks to AI. Today, when we have a certain disease, it is not tailor-made. The treatment is not tailor-made. It is just same fits all. We are going to see tailor-made uh, medicine thanks to AI. So the world will be a much better place in the next few decades uh, thanks to artificial intelligence. And again, like every technology in the history of humanity, uh, it will have downsides and it will have upsides. And I do believe that the upsides are by orders of magnitude more than uh, the downsides. So I'm very hopeful about AI. And it's, my hope is much bigger than my, my concern. My concern is actually due to how the humanity reacted, the madness that ensued in the past two years and is still still going on. It, it, it a bit uh, changed my faith in the rational thinking of humanity and, and especially um, the, the decision makers. Yeah, well, those, those decision makers, we sometimes, uh, and not laughingly, <laughs> as we should refer to them as leaders, hopefully we will do better for ourselves uh, in our uh, choice of leaders. Uh, Eli, David, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled at our choice of guests today. Thank you for being with us. I hope you will join us, uh, well, actually regularly and frequently. Uh, I wish you all the best and thanks for being with us here on The Great America Show. Thank you very much. Join us again tomorrow for The Great America Podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against all odds.